Lizzie Gottlieb is an American film and theater director, best known for her documentaries Today's Man, Romeo, Romeo, and the just-released Turn Every Page, which he's here to talk to me about. It's a documentary about the 50-year relationship between her father, the editor Bob Gottlieb, who's 91, and the writer Robert Caro, who's 86. It follows them as they work on Volume 5 of Caro's biography of Lyndon B. Johnson. The two have worked, as I say, together for 50 years, starting with Caro's biography of Robert Moses, entitled The Power Broker, Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much for having me. So what's at stake with this documentary? Such a good question. Do you mean what's at stake in this documentary? (laughs) Or do you mean for me personally as a filmmaker? (laughs) Um, Yes, all of it. I'm going to take the first interpretation (laughs) of that question. Okay. And, And I think it's a great question because I think, you know, as I thought about trying to make this film, I really did not want to make a film that was an ode to two highly accomplished men and looking at their achievements that really held no interest for me. What fired me up about telling this story was that so much is at stake in this story. You know, I think that there is an enormous amount at stake for these two men who, as you said, are 91 and 87, and they are in a race against time to finish their life's work. We might say a tortoise-like race against time to finish their life's work. They're not rushing, but, but time is of the essence. And I think everyone is very aware of that. And I think there's an enormous amount at stake for people who are readers of these books, because those of us who are obsessed with Caro have been following these Lyndon Johnson books for about 45 years, and we are waiting to see what happens. You know, Caro reveals so much about the use and abuse of power in America, and we want to make sure he gets to finish the story he set out to tell. So I find that the readers are avidly, rapidly waiting for the books to be finished. So there's a lot at stake for us readers. And there's a lot at stake for me personally, I think, because this film is largely about my father, who's 91, and I feel that every moment I have with him feels precious and important. And um, yeah, so so realizing what was at stake helps me start the movie uh, with a kind of sense of urgency, and that has kind of shaped the story we're telling here. Okay, I'm thinking of steel, like a steel blade, and a hard diamond is what I'm thinking about. So if you keep that in mind, I just want to quote from the great art director, Condé Nast's great art director, Alexei Brodovich. And this is sort of his philosophy of education. I hope we can discover a new way of communication how we can invent. Don't believe that I'm a teacher. I'm a student, a beginner like you are. I don't think we can preach or teach. To learn yourself is more difficult than to listen to a teacher. Please take everything I say with a grain of salt. My way of guiding people is by irritation. I will try to irritate you to explore you. 
if I criticize too much, I will make a mold of you. You should articulate yourselves. And just finally, dust off tradition, dust off old habits. This will be the first step of our evolution. We must discover new ways of communication. We are to irritate each other. You should provoke me. And only then can I provoke you back. I believe in this backfire technique. The more disagreement, the more we learn. So does that capture it? Sure. Yes. You mean the relationship between the writer and the editor? Well, these two particularly. I think it does capture it. Um, It's beautiful. I think, you know, so another reason I wanted to make the film was to look at this very productive, very peculiar, contentious, um, sort of magical relationship between these two men. So what did you learn? Well, I... I think maybe you need to see the film to see what oh. I learned. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I made this uh, film over seven years and I learned so much. Look, on the one hand, I felt that I knew a lot about each of them. And on the other hand, I learned so much about creative collaboration. I think there's a, an alchemy that happens between these two guys that creates something extraordinary. Look, the bulk of the work is Robert Caro's. He's writing the books, but then what I felt that, people don't know about is how do books get made? You know, you have an image of a writer sitting somewhere writing a book. And then there's this other part of the process, the editing, the publishing, that's mysterious unless you've been in that process yourself. And I thought I'm interested in that and curious about that. And I bet other people will be too. And this particular relationship, look, I wanted the film to work for people who love Caro. And I wanted the film to work for people who've never heard of Robert Caro. So Mm -hmm. I thought that if I could capture this very singular creative collaboration that has taken place over 50 years and evolved over 50 years and is still evolving and is still producing great work, I thought that would be interesting and hopefully inspiring, certainly for me and for other people who try to create things and try to collaborate with each other. I thought that was important to try to capture. Okay, I've been doing that for the last 10 or 15 years. That's exactly what I've been doing. So I want to know what you learned. Well, there are a few lines in the film that really resonated for me and my collaborators. I have two extraordinary producing partners, Joanne Nuremberg and Jen Small. And I had two incredible editors, Molly Bernstein and Kristen Newtail. I had an incredible cinematographer, Matt Hupfel. It goes on and on. But we would repeat to ourselves at various stages certain lines from the movie. So Kathy Hoorigan, the managing editor of Knopf, talks about the two Bobs fighting. And she says, but they have the same noble goal. And the goal is to make the best book possible. Turn to each other over and over again and say, same noble goal. You know, we would have tension. We would have conflict. We'd have disagreements. And then if you hold in your mind, in your heart, that notion that you have the same noble goal to make the best film possible... It helps. Do you know? It, it reminds yep. you of why somebody is arguing with you and you appreciate that they're arguing with you. And you think it either either they're right and you listen to them or you think, no, this reconfirms what I believe to have somebody push against it. So that was an enormous thing to 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 learn and to absorb. I think other lessons we learned from the two Bobs, they each have mottos or maxims that they follow. 
my fathers are get it done, do it now, check, check, and check again. And it's so straightforward and practical, but I can't tell you how many times I circled back to it. There are things that are uncomfortable or painful or annoying and, you know, and just get it done, do it now, and then go back and check, check, and check again. It's so useful. And um, it's one of those things you sort of resent and you don't want to hear it. You don't want to have to tell yourself that, but if you do, you do get it done, do you know? And then Bonaparo, well, of course, I'm, if you want me to keep going, I can. I do, I do. This is exactly what I want. Um, so Bob Caro, there are two things that he sort of uses as his North Star. One is the title of the film, which is Turn Every Page, which I think explains itself. It's advice that he got from his managing editor um, in the 50s, I think, Alan Hathaway. At Newsweek, yeah. At Newsweek turn every page. And we certainly try to do that with this movie. We would turn to each other and say, what would Robert Caro do? <laughs> you know, turn every page. And the other one, he has this index card that he has on a lamp on his desk as he's typing on his typewriter. And it says, the only thing that matters is what is on this page. That's about this total dedication to craft. Well, he wanted the reader to feel LBJ's desperation. That's right. Feel it every page. That's right. And so if you take that also as our, you know, we as filmmakers took that to try to not just say, oh, look at this interesting collaboration, but to make people feel, to make people feel something, to make people care, to make people laugh, you know, and be invested in the emotional journey of these two guys. And you succeeded because uh, you look, for example, at their difficult, both, I thought this was interesting, both of them had difficult relationships with their father. Both of them have had beautiful, long relationships. In fact, this, this was so sweet. That picture of Caro apparently was the moment he met his future wife. That's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? He couldn't fit the whole story in the movie, but the story is that he was the editor of the Daily Princetonian while he was at Princeton. They were doing an article about the editor and there was a photographer with him at a party taking pictures of him. And he saw this beautiful girl, his words, girl, dance by with another guy. And he said to the photographer, well, let's take a picture with her. That's a photo of Bob and Ina at the exact moment that they met yeah that is ever since that's spine tingling is what that is and you know what it also says is this man's uh you know you can't put him off his he's got a mission it seems who cares if he's she's with another guy (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) okay at the beginning you establish their credentials And what you do is uh, you call upon Daniel Mendelssohn and and David Remnick. And I was thinking about, okay, so you want to, people who don't know the the Bobs, maybe they would know these other guys who are speaking very, well, reverentially about these two. The fact that your father has established, Colossus that's established the landscape of literature in the second half of the 20th century. But it strikes me that all of the four of them, they're, and your dad uses this word, they're 
incredibly industrious and energetic. They've got energy. That's so key, isn't it? I think it is. I think my father has more energy than anyone I've ever seen. You know, he juggles a million things. I feel that he gets more done in a day than I do in a week. And that's always been true. And it's still true at age 91. He's doing so much. And Bob Caro is doing so much. Incredibly inspiring and energizing just to be around. Yeah. Yeah. Now you might uh, say they didn't have to be the primary child caregivers. They didn't have to make dinner every night. There are, there are very significant women behind these men who enable their careers and their lives to happen. And I hope that I give credit to both Ina Caro and my mother, Maria Tucci, who is an actress and has her own career as well. But, you know, I think that was important to me to show that these long, long marriages are integral. That, to- yeah, they wouldn't have been able to do it without it. They wouldn't have been able to. They would have crashed and burned. Okay, tell me your take on the role of the writer. What do you mean? Well, Caro, he exemplifies a great writer. So how does he define that role? You've spent seven years with this. You know, well, I think Caro sort of divides the way he thinks about his work into two parts, into the research and the writing. and the film is very focused on the writing for a lot of it. And then we start focusing on the research and he's obviously the most extraordinary genius researcher perhaps the world has ever seen. And he, his eyes light up when he talks about the research. He loves spending days, weeks, months going through the 45 million documents at the Lyndon Johnson library. You know, it's, it's joyful to him. And so to me, watching the difference between how he feels about research and how he feels about writing yes, yes. is very poignant. You know, he's like, the research is wonderful. And then his face just kind of scrunches up and he says, writing is very hard. And I think, you know, Bob feels that in order for a book to endure, to matter, in order for people to read a book, it's not just that the thing that it's about has to be important, but the writing has to grab you and he, he thinks he thinks about writing. He thinks about the rhythm. He thinks about the choice of words. He thinks about length of sentences and punctuation, paragraphs. So all of those things have to be at the highest level. He says, you know, he will read a chapter of Giddens Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And then he reads chapter of War and Peace. And then he starts writing his chapter because he wants the he wants to immerse himself in that great, great writing. And I think part of the reason these two Bobs have these incredible fights is because they both care at the highest level about the book, the chapter, the paragraph, the sentence, and the punctuation. So they say it, everything is as important as everything else. Yes. You don't yes. have a sentence that grabs the reader. No one's going to keep reading these books. And so who cares if they reveal incredible shocking truth about America if you're not gripped by it you're not going to turn the page and keep reading so I think one of the reasons people care so much about these books is you cannot put them down they're huge enormous tomes but once you start reading them you can't stop you just keep going and going and going and so that's I think what makes Kara such a successful brilliant writer who people feel so emotionally connected to I think I think when you've read these books you feel that you've put an enormous amount of your life and time into reading them. And so you connect to him 
And I think you feel that you care. You feel how much he cares about his revelations and you do too. So you feel that your life has been somehow shifted or changed by reading them and you're smarter and wiser. Wow. That was beautifully put. Thank you for that. Yeah. My favorite, one of my favorite parts, and there were many in the film was when he talks about the Iliad and how uh, he uses the opening to formulate his opening. He built this expressway and then that, and kept repeating the word expressway. This was the, and again, you brought in another Ethan Hawke, right? To read it. Why'd you do that? Well, I wanted somebody to read passages of the book so that we feel the excitement that the books generate, that the words generate. And I thought a lot about who it should be. I did not want a random celebrity showing up and reading the books, but I wanted somebody great. And I asked Ethan for a couple of reasons. Reason is he's a good friend. We've worked together over the years and it was an easy ask, but that wasn't enough of a reason. What I thought was great about him, of course, he's a Caro fan. He's a writer, but also he's a New Yorker. So he seemed appropriate for, for the power broker. And he's a Texan. His family's from Texas. His grandfather was involved in Texas politics and in Lyndon Johnson. So it felt like he understands both worlds. And it turns out that Bob Caro is a huge Ethan Hawke fan. Oh, dear. (laughs) Movie before sunrise. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. In fact, I was going to say, I mean, I always think about him because he plays a writer in that. And he goes to Shakespeare and Company. That's right. That's right. So, you know, and I just think he's an incredible, he was an incredible reader. So it felt like the right choice. Okay. So what's your Iliad as a documentary filmmaker? Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned Bob Carroll writing about how he, when he talks about using the Iliad as inspiration, he's talking about how no one would read The Power Broker. Nobody knew who Robert Moses was. No one's going to read The Power Broker, he says, unless I could do something right at the beginning of the book that would make people understand how important he was, the significance of what he built. And for us, the crafting of the beginning of this movie was unbelievably hard because you're like, some people know who these guys are. A lot of people don't know who they are. So who is Robert Caro? Who is Robert Gottlieb? Uh who is Robert Moses? Who is Lyndon Johnson? Why do we care? What is editing? Nigel, I just lost you. Are you still there? Hello? Um, I'm waiting to see if he pops up back in the waiting room. I'm not quite sure why that happened. Um, okay. But I'll let you know as soon as he pops back up before okay. I let him in. There we go. Sorry. Uh, a lot of these people... A lot of these people don't know who they are. Oh, there we were. Okay, wait, I can't see. I've lost you again, visually. Ah, wait a sec. Does that mean you like my appearance? I do. Is that what that that means? Your just appearances generally. I think that's what I I should take from this. Can't it be both? (laughs) <laughs> okay let me just reorient myself your question yes was, your question was what's your iliad i think right so yes so the so and your beginning sorry so crafting the beginning of this movie 
was like a really hard lift because there's so much you have to explain and nobody wants an explanation at the beginning of a movie. They want to be drawn in, right? And yet there's tons of information. Who is Robert Caro? Who is Robert Gottlieb? Who is Robert Moses? Who is Lyndon Johnson? What is the role of an editor? What is this movie going to be about? Why should we care? You know, all of this stuff. Here, a bunch of old white guys sitting in chairs. Why would we be engaged, right? So, do you know, I think our Iliad, if that's your, if that's the question, our Iliad was how the hell do we begin, you know, and Caro. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't Citizen Kane then. It, was, it wasn't Citizen Kane. Um, but Caro looks to the Iliad to, to, to kind of inspire him in terms of rhythm. And yes. I think we kept saying, we have to do something at the beginning to engage people and to kind of say, hey, this is going to be fun. This is not a slot yes. to ancient yeah. history. This is a fun, funny, energized, inspiring story. So we worked for months on trying to crack the beginning. And, you know, you, you tell me, but I hope that we did. And we definitely thought endlessly about, about Bob Caro's looking to the Iliad for inspiration as we did that. Okay, I know exactly how you did it. You Tell did me. you did what the aboriginals in Australia first discovered. You put music to storytelling. That music is definitely like an important if not the most important character in the movie, I figure. I'm so glad you said that because I had the unbelievable privilege and luck to work with these composers. They're, they're a married couple, Claire and Olivier Manchin. And we brought them in really early in the process. And I think they are true geniuses. And not just because their music is beautiful and energized, but because they really, really understood. They had the same noble goal and they understood what we were trying to do in each piece of the film, each section of the film. And they created music that supports when it needs to support and lifts us up when we need to be lifted up. It really, the process of collaborating with them was one of the great joys of, of working on this film. Well, you know, and I know dance is important to your father, but that's how I saw this is it was a dance this it's, it's was a dance and it was whimsical and ironic and beautiful. It was. Um, I'm just uh, processing what you just said, by the way. And uh, it seems to me you're saying that writers uh, should test themselves against the greatest works that have ever been produced. Well, that's what Bob Caro says. So I'm just telling, I'm sort of just re repeating what he says about his process. I think different writers have different processes, right? Some writers are much more, you know, uh, intuitive and it, it something flows out of them. I don't think it flows with Bob Caro. I think it's much more considered and deliberate. Um, but I think the writing process is different for every writer. And I think the editing process is different even with the same editor, with different writers. Yes. Uh, incidentally, I just got a message saying five minutes. I can't, I can't, I have to continue this, but I know you have to go somewhere. I, I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop doing this. How about it's, 10 minutes? 
Can we do 10 minutes? No, well, okay. I mean, I'm going to okay. have to. Whatever you need. I'm going to have to accept it. Well, let's keep going. Okay. Yes, of course. Your father says it really is what it, it, each different writer, you have to kind of gauge them. You have, it's a service. It's helping them to, to achieve the best they can possibly achieve. That's exactly right. So he says every, every relationship is different. He yes. Over and over again, it's a service job. Give the writer what she or he needs in each case. And that's different in every case. So every writer-editor relationship is a different one. Yes. You talk about the fact that something is disappearing. And uh, it kind of rings true with me. I spent years photographing as many used antiquarian bookstores as I possibly could. I've, I've got six or 7,000 of them. What are you, first of all, what do you think is disappearing here? And what do you want to capture? So I have two answers to that. I have what a thought about what is disappearing and what isn't disappearing. Um, in terms of what's disappearing, I think that the publishing world has changed a lot. I think it's much more corporate than it used to be. I think that the possibility, you know, Lynn Nesbitt, Bob Caro's agent, speaks in the film about how this kind of collaboration could never happen again. Do you know, I think that a publishing house that's able to say to a writer, go ahead, take 50 years, we're here. <laughs> well, in fact, in fact, that's what Bob Caro says. He says it's one of the gifts that he got was, you know, he'd come up with this idea. And oh, by the way, it's going to take a whole bunch of years. And and Bob Gottlieb just it's like automatic, no big deal. It's like that's he says that's a gift. And he says, you know, I, I always think of that moment when he he comes to my father and they decide that he's going to do a series on Lyndon Johnson, right? It's going to take many volumes and it's going to take many years. And he says, but where will I get the money? And my father says, don't worry about that. Yes. And I are going to work that out. And to me, I always yeah. felt that that moment is like the moment in a movie where a superhero gets his power or his cape or whatever it is, right? It's like, go. Because yeah, I that's exactly what you want an editor and publishers to do. That's exactly what you want. To be in a position where you can say, this is unbelievably valuable and worth doing. Yes. And I give you whatever you need to be able to do that. It's an extraordinary thing. And I'm not sure that there are publishing houses that are able to do that anymore. To support financially and emotionally, do you know, a, a yeah. decade project. And if you can let me veer off on this a little bit more. Um, before I talk about the good part, the not vanishing part, but I, I, you know, there's a scene we had to cut out of the movie because of time where we interviewed Andy Hughes, who's the head of production at Knopf. And he talked with this reverence about the quality of the paper they use in the Caro books over the decades. And he talks about the cloth binding with the gold lettering that they use on the covers, which is not used anymore. And he says, but we had we want to keep going with the books feeling the same over decades out of respect to the readers who have devoted so much of their lives to this, to, to reading these books. We want it to feel at the end of the day, like a singularity of effort and that we haven't degraded our quality only because time has marched on. 
Right. And you think what an the, extraordinary industry and company that's able yes. to think about the dedication of their, not just this writer who's put his life's work into this, but into the readers who devoted themselves to these books. So the quality of the physical book matters so much. I just want to say that as far as the author goes, they're, they're valuing him. They're, they appreciate him. They, it, it's so must be so fulfilling. That's, this is what you wish for in the ideal publishing world. I think that's right. That's right. And it's, it's, to me, it's very moving and very emotional and it's about a reverence for books. And there is where I think the hopeful part comes. You know, I have a lot of friends who work in publishing now and a lot of friends who are writers. And I think that reverence for books remains. And I think that readers are still readers. You know, I think that when my father makes this point over and over again, that, you know, the publishing world is not over, that there's people are reading, people revere books, people feel passionately about Mm -hmm. books. And I don't think that's going to go away. So in that sense, I feel quite hopeful about the book world. Well, when you think about it, and I I will wind down here, uh, but when you think about it, there are probably more people reading books and valuing them than ever before. I mean, the population keeps growing, right? It does. That's right. And there are, you know, some people don't read, but a lot of people do read. And that's, I don't think that's going away. Here's the thing. Here's what I'm thinking of is, you know, we talk about your, your father's role. Plus he's a collector. I love that. Plus he's, uh, he would, he was a big fan of Swallows and Amazons. And despite the fact that some of my, you know, uh, people I admire the most, you've gotten to, to talk about them. That was the thing that did it for me. The fact that he loves Walls and Amazon, and I did too. Okay, that's it. I mean, those books are so incredible, and they were very formative for him, you know, as he describes himself as little scrappy New York Jewish boy, <laughs> with British, you know, and he doesn't like the outdoors. No. Uh, but he loved those books about those kids out on the water in England. I and did too. I have a comment that my dad's one of my his great lines that we also couldn't fit in the movie. He said, I think the worst inventions of the 20th century were nature and feelings. Right. Well, you know what he said about that, those books, though, is that there were a couple of bookish types that showed up after a few books and they were included in this wonderful little community. And he felt, OK, I, I actually might be able to get in there, too as part of this community. Oh, yeah. I think he loved, he wanted to be a part of that group of children. Here's something that I I also loved in the film was just very small detail. And that is he sent you jazz tapes every week when you were at college. That tells me a lot. You know, he was, um, I spent a semester of college in Paris, which was incredible. And he was really into jazz at that time. And he would make me not exactly a mixtape. It was like he would record one of his records onto a tape, you know, and it would just sort of end randomly at the middle and he'd turn the tape over every week. He would send me 
one singer, you know, Mel Torme or Chet Baker um, yes. or Anna Washington. And it was so moving and wonderful and had a kind of just very magical quality to be in Paris and listening to the, the music my dad wanted me to hear. Well, what's surprising is you actually listened to him. Of course I did. Okay. The way you end the film, I think, is really clever. And I guess it's because there's silence. They're, they, you don't get into the magic. The alcohol, you, It's up to us to figure out. The thing is, they're the happiest. In the whole film, the two of them are look the happiest when they're in that editing room and there's we don't get the uh, we don't get the audio. I'm so glad you said that because I do feel in a way Bob Caro did me a favor by saying we have to turn off the sound here because I think it made me and then all of us focus on that joy that I think you see on their faces and you see their pencils, you know, dancing across yes. the page. And I feel like, oh, there they are doing what they're meant to be doing and loving it. And I think we, we've, I hope you've earned that feeling of, oh, like a kind of reverence for, for the work itself. And I, I don't mind that we don't hear them. I actually think it's a strength. I think it's a perfect ending because, uh, because there is something magical that you just cannot explain. And I, this um, will sound really pretentious, but I, um, I sort of like to think of the ending of the movie a little bit like the ending of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Beautiful. It freezes. Right? It freezes on them in action. Yes. So something's coming, but yeah. they something are big. <laughs> doing the thing that they do. And so yeah. in the back of my mind, that's what I kind of thought of with the ending of the movie. That's so good. Okay, two th- two more things. It took me back to so- I was in Prague this past summer at a writers program, and I met this young guy who's just he's just uh, a couple of young guys, and they were fun and smart and just crazy writers. They want to be writers. They're writing you know novels, and I did. I worked with both of them just in that way, and I it's just. It's just such a beautiful way of opening up conversations, of getting to know someone, of laughing. It's it, there's just nothing quite like that process, is there? Yeah, it's true. Okay, and finally, we talked about uh, paying attention to this noble cause, this noble pursuit of writing the best thing you can possibly write, but you need to wed that with an important um, theme or topic or message. And I can't think of a more important one than Caro's message of understanding power so we can have a stronger democracy. Yeah, I mean, you, you said it so well. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's why these books, of, of all books that I thought of, you know, focusing on here, these books are so unbelievably important, urgently important, maybe now more than ever, because they reveal how the world that we live in was constructed. And, you know, Lisa Lucas says it in the movie, she says, if we understand power, and we understand what power does to those of us who don't have it, then maybe we can imagine a better future. So, 
to me, the importance of these books is not just understanding what happened, but understanding the way the world we live in is built and how we might build it differently. Carol is a romantic, your father says. But you know what's so powerful about what he's doing is he's dismayed and he's shocked, he's upset and he's crestfallen about this character who he thought was going to be a hero and it, he's not anywhere near a hero. He's, and he discovers that fixed elections, stolen elections are common. Well, I think what he does is, you know, he says he didn't want to discover that Lyndon Johnson yeah. stole his Senate election. And then I think he himself was shocked and dismayed by what he found. And what he says is that he wants to show what a stolen election really is. And I think that word is important. Do you know, I think it's easy to, to, to hear that story and think, oh, he's just saying people steal elections all the time. But he says, no, let's look at what it really is. And he goes to unbelievable lengths to learn what Johnson did. And, you know, I think that's a tricky scene to watch today, but an important scene to watch today as we think about stolen elections and what they are, what they might be, you know, and what they're not. Well, I've had a horrific thought, and that is, what if Trump is right? God almighty. No, he's not. Anyway, it's so relevant. Your movie is wonderful. It was so much fun to watch. Uh, Thank you for spending time talking to me about it today. It's totally delightful to talk to you. Thank you so much for, for, for the conversation. Have a great lunch. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.